What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's features Black archivist, collector, and curator Lisbeth Tellefson. She's one of the curators of the current Angela Davis exhibit at the Oakland Museum of California and a UC Berkeley Black Collaboratory Fellow. Good morning, Lisbeth. Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Really excited about this conversation. Um, Lisbeth, I, I want to start with a bit about little Lisbeth, uh, specifically where and how you grew up and what your family was like. Uh, sure. So um, I am actually a native Californian. I was born in San Francisco, pretty much raised in the East Bay, uh, West Berkeley, Albany High School, Oakland. So I'm a California girl, but that said, I'm also first generation. My mother was a Norwegian immigrant, never even a citizen. So, you know, first generation is an offshoot that, um, you know, comes with particular experience. So, you know, definitely a Bay Area native, but also, you know, some other communities that really helped form me. Let's put it that way. And not only were you first generation, but you were also a biracial child growing up in the explosion of politics in the Bay Area in the (laughs) 60s and 70s. Um, And the other day, uh, you were giving your presentation for our UC Berkeley Collaboratory, Black Collaboratory, and I heard you refer refer to yourself as a unicorn. Talk about growing up as a biracial child during those times. And I'm also biracial, right? And, And I found that at some point, we make a choice in terms of, are we going to lean into our Blackness and liberation for Black struggle, or some folks make a different choice? And uh, what I know about you is that you definitely have leaned into the liberation um, struggle for Black folks. Yeah, you know, um, I was definitely raised in an eclectic village. Um, you know, we moved to Berkeley Uh, when I was about two, maybe a little less than two. And my mother was a single mom who had no roots in this country and was really kind of struggling. And so she fell into a village. You know, we were adopted into a tribe of immigrants, you know, Black progressive activists, um, single moms, like I think in our little West Berkeley street off of Gilman, I don't know that there were any nuclear families. You know, we were all just a ragtag bunch. And there were also a lot of immigrants, you know. So my experience didn't really seem to be that much outside of the mainstream, at least in our neighborhood. And um, when I was preparing for this exhibit, you know, I found myself referring to myself as a rainbow movement stepchild. I'm a rainbow movement stepchild. And I've actually spent a lot of time kind of like dissecting that, you know, rainbow for obvious reasons. My father was African-American from um, LA, you know, grew up West Adams. And he was also active in the San Francisco Bay Area. My grandfather, my grandfather's name was John Mingo Turner. 
My father's name was John Mingo Turner Jr. And he had like a little underground, you know, jazz something um, in uh, the Fillmore, um, the part of the Fillmore that was torn down when they uh, built Japantown. And um, my mother was from small island off the coast of Norway. So she could not have been more green. <laughs> you know, I think she came to the States um, on a temporary, you know, with a with an idea of visiting a friend of hers who was out here for nursing school. And I think it took her less than a year to get knocked up and she never went home again. So that is my origin story. So anyway, fast forward, we are now in this really cozy, beautiful village of folks who, you know, all come from different places, um, maybe all have different sort of political leanings, but we are family. And um, her job was she started working in the loan department of the Berkeley Co-op Credit Union, which unbeknownst to her was like a hotbed of Berkeley political activity. You know, everything from labor, union organizing, all manner of black lefties, um, single moms, hey, were always well represented in just about every corner of my universe. And so here is this woman who's not a citizen, can't even vote, but she is literally smack dab in the middle of it all. And because, um, I was probably prior to the latch key kid generation. Um, you know, after school, I just take the bus and hang out in the lunchroom at the credit union. So really from the age of five or six, I was raised in this environment, you know, which uh, to me was just like a beautiful, magical, wild, wacky family. Um, survived two bank robberies before the age of 10. But, you know, it really felt like a little idyllic village where there was always something going on. You know, the magic that is Berkeley in the 60s. And gosh, when you said rainbow, you know, I thought not only of, of what you were talking about, but I, I always... I always remind people that Jesse Jackson did not invent the Rainbow Coalition, that Chairman Fred Hampton, right. right, the the first real Rainbow Coalition, Black Power to Black People, uh, Red Power to Red People, Yellow People to Yellow Power to Yellow People, and White Power to White People. Um, yeah, that's exactly that's, right. Yeah. Um, and an interesting aside, I'm actually an archivist of that history. You know, the original Young Lords organization where Fred Hampton politicized, you know, Jose Chacha Jimenez and transitioned, you know, a Chicago street gang into a political force. Yeah. The Young Lords or organization that in New York City became the Young Lords Party, um, really deep, rich, rich, rich history. Yeah. I could talk to you for for so long about well, so many on. things, and we come we are going to. I know, but we time time constraints on this one. But we're going to do a, a sit down deep dive because uh, there's so there's so much in your history and and the way in which you've captured our history. So I don't know that before you, I'd ever met an archivist. I certainly never met a black archivist. <laughs> 
tell me, tell us, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? And what materials, even though I think folks may have a sense at this point in the interview, what types of materials are you interested in preserving? Sure. So um, first and foremost, I actually call myself a collector. Um, okay. I grew up in the golden Explain age. Explain the of- difference. So um, as a collection, you can collect anything. Um, you know, some of the most pedestrian collections might be recipes, might be baseball cards, comic books. Um, some of the grosser ones I've heard of is toenail clippings. There are legit people who collect just about anything on the planet. An archive is technically a collection of material that is being preserved for a future purpose. So, for example, for example, um, a collection of family history, a genealogical collection, is a family archive. The records of an organization that might be saved for, you know, the organization in the future would be the organization's archive. So essentially, an archive is a collection of material that has, you know, future historical relevance. So early on as a as a kid, I I was a collector. And growing up in the 60s, pretty much everybody was a collector. You know, even in my little ragamuffin neighborhood, you know, Every kid had marbles, comics, baseball cards, you name it. Collecting was kind of um, kind of how we interacted with each other. You know, we fought long and hard for bragging rights. And even though none of us had much money, you know, we were really resourceful to be able to engage like, like that. Um, even our parents, there was this thing called... Um, blue chip stamps and SNH stamps. They were these little stamp books that every time you bought something at a grocery store, they'd give you a block of stamps and you'd put them in this book. And when the book was all full, full of stamps, you'd go down to, um, I think it was a center in Richmond where you could exchange it for a toaster or electric blanket, whatever. So everybody collected. It was just part of the culture. Meanwhile, as I get older, um, you know, I'm kind of interested in different sorts of things. Um, I'm interested in music, so I have a record collection. Um, And one of my obsessions became Latin music. Um, I went through the rabbit hole on like uh, Cuban rumba, salsa from like New York. Um, and it took me actually all the way to Cuba. I had a chapter as an ethnomusicologist, kind of an anthropologist doing field recordings a la Alan Lomax or Zora Neale Hurston back in the day. And when our group came back with all of this material, um, it was a collection, if if you will, but the information held in our recordings, we'd had we had dozens of hours of um, lessons from the great masters of the bata drum or 
folkloric dance troupes or songs and and it became clear that the historical importance of this material was unlike anything I'd ever hoped to achieve with a record collection or any kind of collection. So it was my first experience in building an archive. And my takeaways from that time, which I think is, uh, you know, we're somewhere in the late 80s now, you know, maybe 87, um, is that there is really power in amassing a large amount of material around one subject. You know, we had really, um, when we came back before before we gave in to everybody's wish to make copies of everything that we had, we said, you know, let's do this systematically. All of you that are sitting on, you know, the books that mysteriously disappeared from the libraries, you know, decades ago, we want everybody that has anything related to this field of study, which I would call Afro-Cuban culture in a broad umbrella, um, you know, you're gonna you're gonna add it to this project. And essentially it became an encyclopedic body of knowledge that once disseminated just there are seeds of that to this day. It it started um, just an explosion of study around Cuban dance, Cuban sacred drums, um, Cuban religion, spirituality. Um, and because recordings were still not that common, um, a set of these recordings actually went back to Cuba and started their own mini revolution as they were starting to get passed around. So, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm maybe in my late 20s, and I'm recognizing that this sort of collection, this sort of archive can actually change the world. It can make history. And, you know, that thought, you know, for a little rainbow movement stepchild that you could engage in anything that would actually make history, that seemed like a very big thought to my 20-something brain. And you know, to this day, it still informs some of the work that I do. I don't know if I'm all over your question, girl, but you you got to rein me in. <laughs> I, I do um, have to rein you in just a little bit because I have some other stuff I want to get to. Um, there's, there's, but again, there's so much here, y'all. Feel um, free to like, you know, it, you know, just I, I, I won't get my feelings hurt. So. All right. So the next thing we're going to jump to actually is what when you were giving your presentation the other week, you pulled out this magazine, um, Ashe magazine. And yes. you spoke about an amazing period of time at UC Berkeley um, and your black lesbian collective. And I, I just want you to spend some time talking about that piece of history for my listeners, because I don't know that it's widely known. 
Wow. Um, about all of the amazing humans that were there and communing together uh, during that time period. Yeah, you know, so um, the segue out of my Afro-Cuban chapter, um, at this point, I'm a percussionist. I'm, you know, performing with a number of, you know, Bay Area, different ensembles and whatnot. Um, one of them was uh, I played in, um, his name was Chalo Eduardo. He had uh, a Brazilian batucada that would appear in Carnival called Escola Nova de Samba. And so one year I'm marching in the Carnival Parade with Chalo Eduardo's group. And right in front of us is this group called Sista Boom. It was formed by Barrier lesbian percussionist Carolyn Brandy, who is um, just an icon. And literally, there were a hundred women playing in a percussion ensemble right in front of me. And it's clear I'm on the wrong team. <laughs> you know, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it took me about 15 minutes to. Uh, to switch sides. And so I'm, I'm now, um, I'm living in the mission. I'm on, uh, I live on South Venice in my twenties and I start to do percussion workshops for the women of Sistaboom because, you know, I have all this Afro-Cuban material and, and, um, one of the women, a woman named Pippa Fleming, uh, she sees a tennis racket and she's like, Oh, you play tennis. I'm like, yeah, I play tennis. And um, so we start playing tennis and we start brainstorming about projects. Um, this is a moment where the Mac computer is, is coming up. We're talking like um, 1988. Um, I have my first Mac computer. There's this thing called desktop publishing that people are starting to talk about. And I'm like, you know, I consider myself a little tech forward and, you know, I'm curious enough that I'm always feeling like just, you know, give me access to the right tools and, you know, I can be omnipotent and change the world. And uh, so we, we say, you know what, we should do a black lesbian publication that's also like a calendar of events and my ex at the time, who I was close with, um, was a poet, and she was also an artist. And I'm like, yeah, we can put Stormy, Stormy's poetry and artwork in there. It'll be great. And um, I also ran a printing press. So the thought was, we could just do this for free. It wouldn't cost more than, you know, just the cost of paper and some ink. And I could print it off myself. which. Um, only took me one month to realize, yeah, that ain't going to happen. So we published this free eight-page weekly, which was based around a calendar of events. It had some poetry. It had some artwork. And I think most significantly, it actually said in the title of the magazine, a Black lesbian journal, which at that moment in time was caused a little bit of an earthquake 
you know, the generation mm. of women prior to us, especially the black lesbians, um, you know, women like poet Pat Parker or even Audre Lorde, um, you know, Pat would call herself a raisin in a sea of white. You know, she would do sold out readings and all of that, but there would be few, if any, black faces in the audience. And when Ashe came around and we could deliver complete lesbian of color audiences, it was revelatory to them, you know? Um, we were the ones that they'd been waiting for. And so there was this beautiful moment of cross-pollination where that generation, the previous generation of Black lesbian activists, folk like Barbara Smith of Kitchen Table Press, Audre Lorde, Pat Parker, um, were really taking us under their wing. And we didn't realize at the time how short that moment would be because these women would die way too young. Both Pat and Audrey mm. would pass from cancer. Um, you know, the Black gay men who we worked alongside and contributed greatly to the cultural renaissance that was happening were folks like Marlon Riggs, Essex Hemphill, um, and they died way too young. You know, AIDS decimated that generation, and yet, you know, they kicked off a cultural explosion that I liken to the Harlem Renaissance. You know, mm. when Marlon Riggs, who's a filmmaker, taught at the journalism school at UC Berkeley, um, his opus, Tongues Untied, was a Black gay documentary that was unlike anything I've ever seen. Even since, to this day, every time I'm talking to a young young Black gay man, I'm like, please tell me you've seen Tongues Untied. Please, please, please make that happen. Mm. Um, it is such a seminal work that to this day speaks. So, yeah, it was it was a moment. Um, and because we were a publication that also included current events and poetry and short stories and photography and artwork, um, our mailing list, we were getting information from the first Black gay organization in South Africa. You know, um, Audrey had put us in touch with Afro-German women and sparked this exchange where they came to visit us. One of them stayed at my house for months. <laughs> and matter of fact, I don't think she went back. She's, she's still here. Um, so there was all this cross-pollination of ideas and organizing efforts and it was all infused in our archives. So once again, my little collector habits was amassing an archive that was rich beyond belief on a very significant moment in Black queer culture. 
you know, made even more precious in that very significant people who were only productive for a very short period of time are infused in this collection. So, um, yeah, I'm off topic again, aren't I? Yeah, you're not. You're not at all. You are you are spooning us up some beautiful, rich and amazing history. I am going to bring us into present day, though, and the current exhibit about uh, icon revolutionary. I I mean, there's a bazillion uh, adjectives for her. um, Angela Davis that is at the Oakland Museum of California that you helped curate. Talk about how that exhibit came about and what people can expect when they go. Sure. So um, technically on this exhibit, I am not an actual curator. However, uh, my archive forms the basis of the exhibit. And um, so the genesis of it was 2016 was the 50th anniversary of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense's formation in Oakland, California. They were formed in October 1966 and 50 years later, the Oakland Museum mounted a major exhibit called All Power to the People, Black Panthers at 50. Um, they, uh, The Oakland Museum actually does a great job of convening stakeholder panels. So prior to this exhibit um, happening, they actually pulled together a group of Black Panthers, Um, archivists in the community whose collections featured Black Panther material, which was me. So they convened for a couple of days um, to really get solid input into what this exhibit should be and what should not be missed. Um, In that exhibit, I had maybe 15 pieces. And at the end of it, all of us who'd been Uh, working on this endeavor, we were pleased and probably shocked to find out that this exhibit was the highest attended exhibit in the history of the Oakland Museum. And, you know, I'd spent a lot of time, you know, just kind of observing people and checking out who was coming to see it. And it was everybody from soup to nuts youngsters who were fascinated in this history, you know, activist organizers who were, you know, getting important knowledge they could bring back to current day endeavors, um, you know, nostalgic folk. But the point to me was that there is clearly such a hunger for this history. And I had been building kind of kind of as a personal project, I can get to that later if you choose to follow up. Um, But I had been building this Angela Davis archive that was um, really kind of a formidable collection. I, you know, way past the point of um, any common sense, I now had maybe (laughs) 15,000 pieces of material related to Angela Davis and her 50th anniversary of coming to public prominence, which would have been 1969 um, with her UCLA academic freedom case 
all the way to 1972, which was her acquittal at trial, that was a five-year window. 50, 50 years later would be 2019 to 2022. Okay, my math is not so good. That's three years, but you get my point. Um, and so I started to lobby my museum connections and say, hey, um, you can see from the response to the Black Panther exhibit that there's clearly a lot of hunger for this. I think Angela Davis would would garner that same kind of response. I have this archive. You need to come see it. Um, there is a 50th anniversary window coming up that gives you enough time to work on it. And sure enough, two museums um, took the bait. One was um, a curatorial team of uh, Professor Jerry Began of Rutgers University and um, Donna Gustafson, who was at that time the interim director of the Zimmerle Art Museum at Rutgers in New Jersey and the Oakland Museum because I'd done numerous things with them in the past. And so um, the, the goal was for this to open around 2019, 2020, but COVID um, disrupted the, the timeline a bit, but it did run um, last year at the Zimmerly Art Museum in New Jersey. Um, we published an exhibit catalog called Angela Davis Sees the Time that is a beautiful, beautiful coffee table, coffee table book um, that really goes through so much of the exhibit. We have 150 plates, so gorgeous, full-color artwork. Um, there is a timeline of Angela Davis. There's a beautiful interview with her, which is also... Um, one of the videos that's included um, in the exhibit itself. And I would be remiss to not mention that another one of my favorite elements of this exhibit is another video featuring none other than <laughs> Pat Brooks doing a reenactment of an Angela Davis speech um, for the Port Huron project um, that took place Gosh, at Defremery, Little Bobby Hutton Park. Um, yeah. I don't even remember what year that was. The 2008 scariest acting gig of my life. <laughs> no pressure there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. It, I, it's, I a, mean, it's a lovely exhibit, Lisbeth. It, 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 and, you know, being there the other day and seeing the wide range of folks there, age-wise, gender, race. Um, right. Same, same thing. Folks are funneling in. Um, how long is it running? And I know that you are one that never stops moving. What is next for you in the world? And where can people follow you? Um, as I know that they will now be very intrigued Ooh. to learn more. You know, it's kind of interesting this. Well, first of all, the exhibit runs through, um, I believe it's June 11th, 2023. So there is lots of time to go see it. Um, I'm particularly fond of Friday nights at the Oakland Museum. Um, they have food trucks. They usually have DJs, sometimes live music. Um, it's a great time to actually bring the whole family out and, you know, just explore. You know, it, it's just a beautiful night in Oakland always. Um, and as for what's next, 
I find myself asking that question a lot. Um, at this stage in my life, I recognize that, you know, I live my life in chapters. You know, there was a time where my immersion in, you know, Cuban music and percussion and all of that, there are people who can't imagine I'm not still doing that. Or my Ache chapter, there are still people that come up on the street and call me Ache because they think that's my name and can't imagine I'm not doing that work anymore. Mm. Um, I feel like the Angela Davis archive has been built at this point. I'm actively looking for an institutional forever home to take over the preservation of the original artifacts. And, you know, I think my next chapter, which is related, is, you know, there are so many communities of which I am part where in the historical record, in the archives, there is historical silence. You know, our stories have been absent or undertold. And I've had some years now to really observe the process by which our stories and our histories make their way or not into the repositories of history. And, you know, I'm actually doing that work. You know, I, I'm a personal archivist for several movement figures. Um, and when I start working with people, you know, if, if the first question is, you know, I'd love to talk to you about your papers. To a person, every one of them is like, what papers? I don't have any papers, right? And I'm like, well, um, what about your notes? What about your letters? What about your texts? What about your photographs? And, you know, maybe a year of working with them, they have some papers. And collections that I work with, you know, it may be just a newspaper, but I want you to write in the margins after you read this article, what do you think about this article? What did they get wrong? You know, where are you when this is happening? Mm. So there is a process of not only building collections, but developing collections. Like historical artifacts, you know, it's a piece of paper. It's what makes it really important are the stories behind it. Um, for example, I just saw that one of the one of the old Ache editors, which um, I will say the women involved in Ache back in the day went on to change the world. Um, for example, Don Lundy Martin went on with Rebecca Walker to found the Third Wave Foundation, Third Wave Foundation of Feminism. Um, one of our subscribers, Roxanne Gay, has gone on to do big things. You know, these are people changing the world. So one of them, Samia Bashir, posted um, a number of broadsides that um, she was part of creating. And 
I just sent a little message saying, you know, I'd love to get a, one of those June Jordan broadsides for the collection. Mm. And the printer got back to me and said, oh, I would love, I would love to donate a couple of those. And I said, can you take one of them with pencil? And just on the back, I want you to write down how this came to be. You know, when, where, how. And so I'll have a pristine copy for the archive. And I'll also have a handwritten statement about where this came from and by whose hand. Lisbeth, I have to I have to interrupt us. I am so sorry. Um, these are our shorter segments. We are going to have you back. My producer and I have like been texting, like, okay, we have to do like a full sit down with her. And indeed we do. I want to thank you so much for talking to me and so much for your work and so much for, for preserving um our history. Oh, no worries. It's been it's been a great pleasure. You are listening to Law Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. This is Resistance and Residence. And this week's feature is archivist, collector, and curator, Lisbeth Tellefson. Her Angela Davis exhibit uh, is the Angela Davis exhibit, which she contributed to, is running at the Oakland Museum of California. Um, and we will post information in the archives of this show. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>